The views and opinions expressed on the Wire and Wick podcast are solely those of the contributors and do not reflect those of our sponsors or distributors. This podcast contains adult language and themes. Listener discretion is advised. It's the Wire and Wick podcast with your host, Chris Carlson. Yes, it is the Wire and Wick podcast. I am your host. My name is Chris Carlson. And if you attempt to rob a bank, you don't have to worry about any trouble with rent, food, or bills for the next 10 years, whether you are successful or not. Episode 32, recorded Monday, May 23rd, 2016. Folks, how are you doing? I have had an interesting week, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Uh, But I hope that you guys have had a good week. Uh, We're getting out this week's episode... A little late, but not late. Uh, A little later in the day, but still on time. So that's a win in my book. Uh, Monday is a Monday is a Monday is a Monday. So we're not late as far as I'm concerned. We're on time. So we're releasing on time on a Monday. Uh, So yeah, that's that. Uh, There's a few things I want to talk about this week. And the first thing that I want to talk about is I was at the store this weekend and I saw a big display for Oreos. There's all sorts of different kinds of Oreos. Now, A few months ago, I talked to you guys about the thin Oreos and how they were the same size package as all of the other Oreos. So really what they were doing was bullshitting us. They were telling us, oh, there are thinner cookies and there's less cream in there, but there's the same amount of food in that one as any other Oreo package. So really what they were doing is having us lie to ourselves. Well, they're they're going even further now. Uh, on the side of this big display was a, a voting system where you could vote for the next flavor of Oreos. And you could either pick between, I believe it was a strawberry donut or a jelly donut. It was a jelly donut was one of the options. Caramel apple was another option. And the third option really struck my interest because I, I don't know if this is a joke. The third option for the new flavor of Oreos was cookies and cream Oreos. They got to be fucking with us, right? That can't really be the third option for the new flavor of Oreos, cookies and cream Oreos. Isn't Oreos by definition cookies and cream? It, it, it is a, a, a cookie, a, a chocolate cookie with a cream filling, right? Maybe I don't understand what cream means. It's a frosting. It's a cream frosting. Yes? No? This can't be, this, what, what, what boggled my mind the most about this whole cookies and cream Oreos option was when I really thought about it, someone got paid for that idea. They said in a meeting, we need the new flavor of Oreos. What's the new flavor of Oreos going to be? And somebody said, why not a cookies and cream Oreo? And some executive said, Jim, that's a great idea. Let's run with it. Somebody get this man a raise right now. Give him his bonus for coming up with that great idea, cookies and cream Oreos. No, cookies and cream Oreos is what we already have. That's what the Oreos are. This is the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet there it was standing there staring me at the face. Vote for the new flavor of Oreos, which could be cookies and cream Oreos. It should not be cookies and cream Oreos. And anybody who voted for cookies and cream Oreos, if you are voting in this pick the next Oreo flavor, you're a dunce. You already have cookies and cream Oreos. It's called Oreos. Another thing that happened to me this week, we took my uh, my daughter to a little uh, play place, I guess you'd call it, uh, is this this little like building business that 
just has a bunch of different uh, toys and 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 jungle gyms and things for kids to climb on, like the McDonald's play places, but a whole building of it. And I I I, I want to say something. I want to say something to all the parents out there that consider taking their kids to these kinds of things. Watch your goddamn kids. That's what I want to say to you. Watch your kids. Because let me tell you what happened this week when we took our daughter to this little play place. We took her into the zero to three years old play area. We walked in there with her. We sat down. We watched her. We made sure she didn't fall. We made sure she wasn't playing with anything that could maybe hurt her somehow. We were being good parents. However, other people decided not to be good parents. Some other kid is in there, and he's throwing around these big, huge block chair foam things, and he hits my daughter in the head with one of these toys. Almost hit her again. Pissed me off. I told him, hey, buddy, maybe be a little bit more careful, okay? But watch your kids, because do you know what happened? The mother of that kid was just sitting around chatting it up with her friend. It's not a daycare, stupid. It's a place where you take your kids to play. It's not somewhere where you drop your kids off, walk away, and don't look at them. And you know what her extent was to, 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 to tell the kid not to do it, to stop the kid from throwing those toys around? He tur- she turns around for half a second, looks at him, sees him throwing these around, and goes, Hey, don't do that. Turns back around and starts playing or starts talking to her friend again. How about instead of telling your kid to not do it, you get your kid to stop doing it. You grab him and you tell him, hey, knock that off. Don't be throwing things. There's a goddamn baby in there, idiot. Because your kid's an idiot. Your kid's reckless and stupid. All kids are reckless and stupid. But now you're reckless and stupid too because you can't take the time out of your day to get off of your ass and tell your kid, hey, cut it out. Quit doing that. That's not okay. Fucking, I was... Oh, I was irate, and oh boy, if it if it wasn't for the fact that we paid a little bit of money to get in there, and if it wasn't for the fact that I was having a good day otherwise, that lady would have got a piece of my mind. She did get a, a good look, and I know that she saw because she shot me a dirty look right back, that bitch. Fuck her. That made me so mad. Just watch your kids, all right? You don't have to be a helicopter parent. Helicopter parenting is terrible. Don't do that. But at the same time, don't just tell your kids fuck off and go do whatever you want. It's not a daycare. It's a play area. Act like it. <sighs> the next message that I have for people is, is, is specifically for women. This message is for women. And it's going to sound a little bit sexist from just saying, oh, this is uh, a man telling a woman what to do. But you'll understand in a minute. It all makes sense, all right? And we'll get to why it makes sense in a minute. But women, two things that you need to do. One. Invest in purses that zip on the top. And two, zip up your zip up purses. Now, why am I saying this? Why am I telling women that they need to buy certain purses and that they need to zip up those purses? Well, there's a certain type of woman that needs to do this specifically. And that woman is the woman that my wife encountered in the bathroom this weekend. Now, she, she we, were, we went to the movies. And after the movie was over, uh, my wife had to go to the bathroom. So she goes to the bathroom and she comes out and she tells me the weirdest thing just happened to me. And I said, what happened? The woman in the stall next to her dropped her purse and the things in her purse fell out. All right, whatever. That's embarrassing. Who cares? You know, whatever. She had a zip up purse, wasn't zipped up. All the stuff fell out. Oh, well, no big deal. Well, what was a big deal was the thing that hit my wife's foot. What hit my wife's foot that fell out of this woman's purse was 
Pocket Rocket. Now, if you don't know what that is, go ahead, pause this, Google it real quick. You'll know from me telling the story that this is a bad thing that it hit her foot. You'll know exactly what it is. You'll know when you hit the right definition of what a pocket rocket is. So this woman's pocket rocket falls out of her purse, hits my wife on the foot. My wife is understandably grossed out. You don't know where that thing's been. Uh, you don't know where the thing that that thing's been has been. So <laughs> she's a little bit perturbed by this, of course, but she handled it well. The woman said, I'm sorry. And she said, it's fine. It's no big deal. And the woman grabbed it, put it back in her purse, hopefully washed it after that because it hit the dirty bathroom floor. But the point is, Invest, guys. Invest in a zipper purse and make sure that you zip up your zipper purse. Otherwise, if you put things like pocket rockets in your purse, they're going to fall out and people are going to see it and nobody needs to see that. There's nothing wrong with it, but I don't know. Why is she carrying it in her purse, though? That's what I wonder. Where is she going in public that she needs to have that thing with her? Uh, I imagine that they're not super duper quiet, so... That's another that's another thing to worry about later. It's interesting that she chooses to take that out in public. That's not the kind of person that I need to associate with or I want to associate with in any way. Uh, 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 whatever. We got a good episode for you this week, you guys. We have a normal sized episode for you this week. This week, we're going to be talking about possibly a huge win, not possibly talking about, but rather we're going to be talking about a possibly huge win from the government against the FDA. We're also going to be asking the question, is Blake Lively, is Blake Lively a racist? And I'll tell you right now, before we get into it, the answer is no. We're also going to be talking about New York City destroying property to be tough on crime, congressional candidate Mike Webb doing some research for us all, a woman who fights for her right to not have children, and some tourists who caused a baby animal to die. It's a full packed episode. It's a good episode. Stick around. It's the Wire and Whip podcast. We'll be right back. Are you afraid of what goes bump in the night? Have you or your friends ever pondered a conspiracy? Do you want to know more about the unknown? If so, then put on your tinfoil hat, sit down, and pick up your computer, tablet, or phone. Go to iTunes or YouTube and search for Secret Transmission Podcast and listen to us try to explain the unexplainable. Follow us on Twitter for updates on shows. At Secret Transpod. That's S-E-C-R-E-T-T-R-A-N-S-P-O-D. Or you can email us suggestions at secrettransmission at hotmail.com. That's S-E-C-R-E-T-T-R-A-N-S-M-I-S-S-I-O-N at hotmail.com. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh, oh so, so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. And we are back. Let's talk vaping, shall we? Now, just for a quick update on our Road to Regulation segment, the second part will not be coming out this week. There is a lot more to unpack than I thought. That's a little bit harder to find than I thought it would be, a, than it would be to find. So, 
That'll be coming shortly, but it's not coming this week. But that's okay because we have some fantastic news this week. This week, Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, sent a letter to the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Robert Califf raising questions about the agency's recent e-cigarette regulation, which, as we know, could create undue burdens on small businesses and possibly lead to negative unintended health consequences. Now, before we talk about the implications, I would like to read you the letter in its entirety to fully understand the gravity of this act. It begins as such. Dear Dr. Califf, the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs is examining the regulatory burdens that the federal agencies place on small businesses. On May 5th, 2016, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration finalized a new regulation that expanded its authority over electronic cigarettes, commonly known as e-cigarettes. I write to request your assistance in understanding the consequences of this new regulation excuse me, that this new regulation may have on small businesses and the public's health. According to the FDA, the final rule extends, quote, the agency's tobacco product authorities on the in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, unquote, as amended by the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act to include other products such as e-cigarettes. The new rule prohibits the sale of e-cigarettes to people under the age of 18. The regulations also require e-cigarette manufacturers to submit pre-market applications to the FDA in order to obtain a federal approval for their products. According to recent reports, the new requirements would force e-cigarette companies to complete a burdensome, burdensome and costly application process. Some manufacturers could spend more than 5,000 hours to complete an application with a minimum cost of $330,000 per e-cigarette product, according to some estimates. As a result of these expensive and time-consuming applications, many e-cigarette manufacturers, most of which are reportedly small businesses, could close down. According to Christian Berkey, the chief executive officer of Johnson Creek Vapor Company located in Heartland, Wisconsin, the FDA e-cigarette regulations would, quote, extinguish a multi-billion dollar industry and put tens of thousands of people out of business, unquote. Mr. Berkey also stated that the new FDA rule would have more than just a burdensome impact on the e-cigarette industry. The effect of the rule would be catastrophic. In its regulatory analysis, the FDA itself acknowledged that the cost of the rule would, quote, be high enough to expect additional product exit, consolidation, and reduction in variety compared with the baseline, unquote. Unfortunately, the FDA's attempt to improve the public's health by scrutinizing the e-cigarette industry could ultimately result in negative unintended health consequences. The costly impact of the rule will have on e-cigarette manufacturers will stifle innovation and make it harder for e-cigarette companies to continue to offer products that serve as an alternative to smoking. It is possible that without a cost-effective alternative, some consumers will resort to traditional cigarettes. In order to assist the committee in better understanding the FDA's decision to expand its authority on e-cigarettes, I ask you please provide the following information and materials. 1. 
The final rule notes that the FDA, quote, does not currently have sufficient data about e-cigarettes and similar products to fully determine what effects they have on the public health, unquote. Further, the final rule states that, quote, comments were divided on the safety and toxicity of e-liquids, e-cigarettes, and exhaled aerosol, unquote. Well, the FDA issued a revised rule if there is sufficient data that finds that e-cigarettes are a safer alternative to traditional cigarettes. Please explain. How is the FDA's regulation of e-cigarettes not a premature restriction on an industry given the FDA's admission that it does not have sufficient data about e-cigarettes to determine the effects on the public health? Two, some stakeholders claim that the FDA's rule on e-cigarettes will stifle innovation and result in the closure of many small businesses that create and sell e-cigarette products. Did the FDA determine how many e-cigarette businesses will be affected by the rule? If not, why? If so, please exp- please provide the data. Of the e-cigarette business that will be affected by the rule, how many of those businesses does the FDA predict will exit the market as a result of the new requirement? 3. Has the FDA considered the unintended consequences if decreased access to e-cigarettes leads to increased consumption of traditional cigarettes and tobacco products? Please explain. Please provide this material as soon as possible, but no later than 5 p.m. on May 31, 2016. When delivering production sets, please produce the majority staff Please produce two majority staff in room 340 of the Dirksen Senate Office Building and two minority staff in room 613 of the Hart Senate Office Building. The Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs is authorized by Rule XXV, uh, I think that's, when is that, 25, excuse me, of the Senate Rules um, of the Senate to investigate the efficiency and economy of operations of all branches of government. Additionally, S res, I'm not sure what S is, excuse me, uh, S res 73 authorized the committee, the committee to examine the efficiency and economy of all branches and functions of government with particular references to the operations and management of federal regulatory policies and programs. For purposes of responding to this request, please refer to the definitions and instructions in the enclosure. If you have any questions about this request, please contact Scott Whitman or Josh McLeod of the committee staff. Thank you for your prompt attention to this manner. Sincerely, Ron Johnson, Chairman. Now, what stands here is the tone of this letter. It's clear that Senator Johnson already knows the answers to these questions and knows that Dr. Califf knows them as well. And he's calling it what it is, government overreach. Now, I'm not sure 100% what exactly the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs is authorized to do, but it's clear that they're on our side. They're not happy with the FDA overhanding the industry over to big tobacco, essentially. And what I've gathered about what the, the gravity of this letter is, is essentially the same as maybe not your boss, but someone higher standing in the company who is close with the boss, who knows the boss, and the boss listens to what they say, coming up to you and asking you for information about why you did something that they don't think that you should have done. You can 
give them a bullshit answer, but if you give them a bullshit answer, it will reflect in how they tell the boss how you answered. So this committee, the way I understand it, reports to Senate, reports to the Senate and tells them this is what they said and this is the action that we think should be taken because of what they said. And this committee has gotten shit done before. They've gotten things overturned. They've gotten things ruled in a different way because of the effects that it would have on the public as a whole. So this carries gravity. This has weight to it. And it's clear that, like I said, they are on our side. The way that the, 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 the statement that really stood out to me that I want to read again was the final rule notes that the FDA does not currently have sufficient data about e-cigarettes and similar products to fully determine what effects they have on the public health. Further, the final rule states that comments were divided on the safety and toxicity of e-liquids, e-cigarettes, and the exhaled aerosol. How is the FDA's regulation of e-cigarettes not a premature restriction on an industry given the FDA's admission that it does not have sufficient data about e-cigarettes to determine the effects on the public's health? That is tone. That is not government red tape, very sanitized speaking. That has tone in it. That has tone that says, we think that this is clear government overreach. You know that this is clear government overreach. We are acting as though this is clear government overreach. And we will see what happens based off of how the FDA responds. They have until the end of the month to respond to these questions, which were pretty clear. But of course, you know that the FDA will find a way to kind of shift this into their own narrative, their own kind of way that they want to speak, uh, their, their own kind of, their own way to spin it. That's what it is. They, they, they're good at the spin and they will find a spin for this, I'm sure. But this is not the kind of committee, this isn't like the media. This isn't something that the FDA can just double speak and give some BS answer to. They know what the BS answer is and they know from their tone that this whole thing is BS. So while this may or may not help us, it's a step in the right direction, 100%. It's a great thing. So I, for one, am really, really happy about this letter. This letter made my week so much better when I read this. Uh, more on this story as it develops. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, I'm Braden, And I'm Dylan. We are the group of champions. We are a comedic podcast where each episode we bring multiple topics about everything and anything. We are here to bring you laughs and the occasional seriousness. We release new episodes every Thursday. You can check us out on Facebook at Group of Champions. You can find us on Twitter at Group O Champs. And you can also find us on SoundCloud. Would you believe it's the exact same thing? Probably. Thanks for listening. And we are back. Let's talk about news, shall we? Now, I want to open up with the non-story first. It's a fun story. I had a fun time writing about it, uh, but it's not important. It's non-consequential, but it's fun. So we're going to do it. Actress Blake Lively has come under fire this week after posting a picture of herself on Instagram with the caption, LA face with an Oakland booty. A statement many are taking as a rich white woman appropriating women of color. Now, before we get into the reality of this story, I want to zoom out and tell you a little bit about uh, one site in particular uh, and what they are saying about this story. The website Jezebel reported on the post as followed, quote, 
While Lively's caption is most likely a nod to Sir Mix-a-Lot's bar mitzvah staple, Baby Got Back, which includes lyrics that match Lively's caption, it's still problematic. In the end, it touts a diametrical opposition, that Los Angeles can be equated to elegance and or beauty, and that Oakland is its foil, read blackness. To make matters even worse, or better if you thrive on mocking dumb outrage, such as myself, they open their article with the following line, quote, Actress Blake Lively added yet another entry to her long list of being passively racist in a recent Instagram post, unquote. What other passively racist things has Blake Lively done, you might ask? According to their parent company, Gawker Media, quite a lot. On her blog, Lively posted a blueberry muffin recipe while celebrating the blues, or as Gawker chose to report the story, celebrate African-American struggle with Blake Lively's muffin. Likely, Lively also made a posting about uh, celebrating antebellum fashion, the style of women in the South before the Civil War. The headline Gawker ran with, Blake Lively's fall fashion inspiration is slave owners, as opposed to what it was, clothing worn during a time in a place. Clearly, Gawker, like those outraged over this caption, are searching for racism where there simply isn't any. If I tell you guys that I like Robert Johnson, that makes me a racist. Clearly, that's more than a little absurd. Now, at the Venture Festival this week, Trevor Noah had the following to say about the matter as well. Quote, to me, that to me was a classic case of people jumping on the bandwagon of fake outrage and not using the opportunity to look beyond what was said to you in the headline. People lost their minds. People were like, oh, this is another case of a white person appropriating black culture and using people of color as a punchline. Let's take a step back for a second. Yes, there's appropriation. You can say that many times black people have been seen as a punchline in jokes. I understand these things. In fact, it goes both ways racially. Let's not forget this was a pre-existing lyric. In essence, what you are saying is that Blake Lively has offended people because she has posted a lyric from a song that is honoring or celebrating the Oakland booty. Does LA have beautiful faces? Yes, it does. Why? Because it's generally an acting population. People are going out there to make their big break. It is seen as a beautiful face population. Does Oakland have beautiful booties? This is subjective. Because there is a high population of people of color, there's bound to be more bootiness happening in that place. Sir Mix-a-Lot's celebration of color, excuse me, Sir Mix-a-Lot's celebrating the thing. His position is predefined. He's discriminating against those who don't have booties. That song is celebrating the female form, especially people who have larger posteriors. Now you have someone who's posted that lyric on Instagram, who I can only assume was celebrating her body, which is what we're supposed to do in society, unquote. Now to round off this story, we should hear what the man himself, Sir Mixalot, had to say about the post. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Sir Mixalot said, quote, I wrote the song because I wanted Cosmopolitan. I wanted all of these big magazines to kind of open up a little bit and say, wait a minute, this may not be the only beautiful. Fast forward to Blake Lively. For her to look at her butt and that little waist and say, LA face with an Oakland booty, doesn't mean that the norm, doesn't that mean that the norm has changed? 
that the beautiful people have accepted our idea of beautiful? It sounds to me like she was giving the line props. I think we have to be careful what we wish for as African Americans, because if you say she doesn't have the right to say that, then how do you expect her at the same time to embrace your beauty? I mean, I don't get it. I think it's almost a nod of approval, and that was what I wanted. I wanted our idea of beautiful to be accepted, unquote. At the end of the day, I think that we can easily boil this down to a tactic I talk about a lot on this podcast, and that is cry-bullying. People getting upset over nothing to bully people they don't agree with. If Beyonce or Rihanna had posted the same picture with the same caption, nobody would be up in arms. Nobody would asking them ask them what they mean by L.A. face because Blake Lively is white. The phrase Oakland booty becomes a problem. But again, we don't question if, if, if they were to post it, we, would, we wouldn't be asking them, what are you trying to say about about LA faces? Are you trying to say that black women traditionally aren't beautiful and that you have to be white to be beautiful? You have to look white to be beautiful? No. What they're saying is that they come, they, 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 they have a face that looks like people who are beautiful. They have a face that looks like the faces that you see in actors and actresses. And they have a butt that's big and nice looking. That's what this is saying. It's not saying I have a white face and a black butt, unless you want to read it that way. And if you want to read it that way, you really have to take a step back and ask yourself, who is the racist really? Is the racist the person who is celebrating traditionally black beauty? Or is the racist the person who is seeing that celebration and saying, nope, you are not allowed to feel that way about yourself. You are white. That sounds pretty racist to me to say that because of your skin color, you are not allowed to celebrate something that identifies with yourself. That is the definition of racism. That's textbook racism. So at the end of the day, you know, what I, what I, what I want to, what I want to get out of this, what I want people to get out of the stories like this is that what really needs to happen here is we need to stop looking for racism when there isn't any. Because if you do that, it takes the punch out of calling somebody else out when it's actually racism. If somebody does something that is actually racist and you call them out for it, you have created a, a culture of people who will see that and say, well, I don't know if that's really racist. After all, they said that that one white chick was racist because she said that she had a nice butt and they told her that she was appropriating black culture. That's the same thing. That's what we're getting from stories like this, is that kind of reaction to actual racism. So cut it out, guys. I know it's not you. I know you're not doing it. The general guys, everybody, people, stop calling this shit out when it's not there because you take the power away from when actual racism happens, when actual problem happens. We're already seeing it with, with the feminist movement. When you say feminist now, what comes to your mind is not true feminism. What comes to your mind is not women fighting for equality across the board. What, you, what comes to your mind, what comes to my mind when I hear feminist, is women fighting to put down men. Women fighting to put women above men. Not women fighting for equality of all people, but rather the advancement of women at the expense of men. 
And so we see that. We see that that has happened. That is what our society has become. And if we keep on pushing this kind of narrative with, with racism as well, we're going to see the exact same thing. Someone actually being racist and we're going to think, oh, nope, that's just the, uh, the crowd that cries racist about everything. This probably isn't racist. And then people are going to be getting away with actual racism. So cut it out. You're ruining it for everybody. This week... The NYPD held a sort of public execution in the form of a bulldozer running over a parking lot full of confiscated dirt bikes and ATVs, which are illegal to operate within the city. The whole ordeal was streamed via Facebook Live, where city officials said, quote, Mayor Bill de Blasio and the NYPD Commissioner Bratton have said repeatedly, if you put an illegal all-terrain vehicle, motorbike, or scooter on the New York City street, it will be confiscated and one day destroyed, unquote. When asked why they chose to destroy the bikes rather than donate them or auction them in a state where it is legal to own and operate dirt bikes, city officials stated, quote, we checked with NYPD and here's what we can tell you. These vehicles are illegal in the city of New York. We are committed to making our streets, the streets of our city completely safe. That means leaving no opportunity for these things to find their way back on our roads and further endanger our fellow New Yorkers. This is the same reason we destroy the guns we confiscate. The metal from these vehicles is recycled after they are crushed, unquote. However, the amount of metal that can be recycled is likely vastly cut down from what it would be if they would have just transported the bikes to the plant like logical people. Instead, they've lodged rubber, plastic, and glass all throughout the metal of the bikes, most likely ruining a large portion of what could be used as a recyclable. Another question that was unanswered was why the bikes weren't donated to technical schools and colleges that could use the bikes as training materials for mechanic skills. If the city was concerned with the bikes making their way back onto the streets of the city, this is certainly one way to do it in a way that would be saving the education circuit a great deal of money within the city. The bikes could also have been auctioned online, requiring the buyer to pay shipping and handling, netting the city a nice chunk of money that could be used to fund government programs, saving the taxpayers money. Many commenters on the video posted to the New York City's government Facebook pointing out that many of the bikes in the video were very valuable and could be auctioned at a much lower price, making up for the high fee to ship the bikes. People would be jumping on the auctions because they are expensive bikes that would be auctioned off at lower prices. At the end of the day, we should be calling this what it really is, grandstanding. Something like this is unlikely to deter crime, which can be seen by the fact that the city has been cracking down on these offenses, but it still had a record-breaking number of confiscations in the past few months over and over and over consistently. But one has to wonder how much money it costs the city to set up a camera crew and hire two bulldozers to do this job. And on top of that, how much money did it cost to do the cleanup? The entire event was done on the banks of a waterway, so unless the city properly drained every single bike of all hydraulic fluid and oil, they've likely released some of that into the waterway, which I'd be willing to bet is a crime if anyone else did the same. My feelings of this ultimately can be summed up by Andrew P. Collins at Lane Splitter, who said, quote, I don't necessarily disagree with vehicle confiscation as punishment for vehicular crimes, but if authorities want respect, they need to lead by example. 
This is nothing but an example of Soar winning. If the NYPD wants to be seen as a bully, they sure did a good job locking that look down today. And I, I agree 100%. It, it's, it's okay to confiscate the vehicles. If that's the law, do it. But this 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 public display here of saying, ha ha, we took your bikes. We told you that we were going to get rid of them. And then they bulldoze them and destroy them. That's that doesn't look good. That looks like like gloating. And that's unbecoming of anybody, especially government officials. So this is a big, uh, big fuck up for for the NYPD. And everybody seems to laterally agree that this was a big, big mistake that the FDA, the FDA, excuse me, that the NYPD did. Uh, and with that kind of slip, I'm going to take a second to take a drink of Monster, maybe get my mind back in the right place. Talking about the FDA when I'm talking about the NYPD. They both have overreach. So there's that, I guess. Moving on, on May 16th, Virginia congressional candidate Mike Webb posted a message on Facebook along with a screenshot of his browser. While Webb intended to use the image to show how a staffing agency in Alexandria, Virginia was closed down, social media users were more concerned with the tabs that were open on his browser. The tabs in question were, quote, Yvonne Sexy Amateur and, quote, Layla Rivera Type Booty. About seven hours after the screenshot was posted, it was finally deleted, and shortly thereafter, Webb posted the following statement on his Facebook page. Now, before we get into this post, this is an excerpt from the post. The post was deleted, so I was only able to find bits and pieces. It makes sense overall, but there are a few things that are a little confusing about it, but we'll talk about that after we hear the quote. So the quote that he posted on his Facebook page was, Curious by nature... I wanted to test the suggestion that somehow, lurking out in the pornographic world, there is some evil operator waiting for the one in a gazillion chance that a candidate for federal office would go to that particular website and thereby be infected with a virus that would cause his or her FEC data to crash the FEC file application each time that it was loaded on the day of the filing deadline, as well as impact other critical campaign systems. Well... The Geek Squad text testified to me after servicing thousands of computers at the Bailey's Crossroad location that they have never seen any computer using their signature virus protection for the time period to acquire over 4,800 viruses, 300 of which require reinstallation of the operating system. We are currently awaiting their attempt at recovery of files on that machine accidentally deleted when they failed to back up files before reinstallation, a scenario about which... Matthew Warvo speculated openly to me before we were informed by the Geek Squad that the in that it had indeed occurred. But now let me tell you the results of my empirical inquiry that introduced me to Layla and Yvonne. Around Powerball Lottery Time, January 9th, 2016, I calculated the odds that my friend, Reverend Howard John Wesley, and I working independently, arrived at the same prayer plan, and I was able to determine that there was about a one in a billion chance that could have occurred in the way that it did. Well, as much as folks like Duffy Taylor want to hope that the devil is waiting for Christian candidates in a particular pornographic website to infect his or her FEC data file, is more improbable than my Paul and Silas story. 
And I know that Duffy Taylor is not a man of faith belief, so I don't know how he empirically arrives at this conclusion. I couldn't see the probability or possibility without a Rand computer. So, according to Webb, he was looking at porn because he had to do research. He had to see if your computer could get infected by a virus that would jack up your Federal Election Commission files because, as you know, hackers are extremely focused on targeting any and all politicians that happen to stumble upon their website. I can't tell from this statement if he's saying that he heard that that could happen and he was just being a vigilant citizen, or if somebody said that's what happened to them and he was seeing if it would happen to him as well. But what I can tell you with 99.99% certainty is he's lying flat out. <laughs> I'm, I'm not shaming Webb for looking at porn. We all do it. I'm shaming him for two things specifically. One, lying about porn, lying about looking at porn, and two, giving the lamest excuse ever about lying about looking at porn. I guess actually three things. The third thing that I'm, I'm, I'm shaming him for is being a Christian conservative who would likely talk down about pornography and then consuming the same as well as lying to everyone. Both big no-nos. This, 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 this makes me laugh. I think uh, the reason that I find this story so entertaining is because he is a, a right-wing Christian conservative and yet he's looking at porn totally cool. No big deal. I don't have a problem with that. I would never shit on someone for looking at porn. There's no reason to. It's perfectly okay. Everybody does it. But what I am upset with him for is being a very self-righteous candidate and then doing this kind of stuff, saying, I am the best. I am a very family values, Christian conservative, and then looking at porn. And then talking bad about people who do these kinds of things. And then coming up with the lamest excuse ever for why he was looking at porn. I was doing research to make sure to see if 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 the porn sites could, could crash a computer or not. No, you weren't, dude. You were looking at porn. It's okay. Stop lying to everybody. Moving forward, a 30-year-old woman who has won the right to be sterilized on the National Health Service following a four-year battle has defended her choice, saying she was so sure she didn't want to have children. Holly Brockwell, 30, from London, appeared on the UK show this morning to tell how she had been told she couldn't have a procedure to, blo to block her fallopian tubes following a lengthy battle to prove that she never wants to become a mother. The technology journalist had asked for the procedure every day since she was 26, but doctors refused because of her age, offering instead to give her boyfriend a vasectomy. Holly, who revealed that she'd been trolled online over her decision, explained that she was so sure that she didn't want to have children, she didn't even want to entertain the possibility of falling pregnant. She said, at this point in my life, I've worried enough about getting pregnant, and I don't really want to have that. I just don't want that stress anymore. It's put me through so much emotional and psychological stress, I just want to close the door on it. The host asked why the, NS, the NHS should pay for her lifestyle choice. Holly replied, quote, It's going to save the NHS money. 
It's actually cheaper than contraception and cheaper than treating the side effects. It's cheaper than actually having a child on the NHS. It's cheaper than having IVF and all sorts of other things that the NHS offers. In the long term, it will save them money. The lifestyle choice argument is a silly one to me, because having children is a lifestyle choice. Both should be equally respected, surely. Why is one more okay than the other? Writing in the Telegraph, Holly said, quote, It's something I've wanted for years, but that doesn't mean it was an easy decision to make. It's one I've researched, considered, weighed up, and defended over and over again. Every year for the last four years, my general practitioner has refused my decision. I couldn't even get a referral. The response was always, you're far too young to take such a drastic decision. Holly first appeared on This Morning last year in a segment entitled, Why Can't I Be Sterilized at 29? Speaking to the hosts, she explained, this is something I've always felt and it's something I feel so strongly about that I'm as certain as I could possibly be. When asked why she wasn't simply content with birth control, Holly replied, believe me, over the years I have tried every kind of pill available. I accept hormonal contraception works brilliantly for some people, but while it's kept me from becoming pregnant, which I absolutely don't want, it's also saddled me with dizziness, vomiting, skin problems, pain, and relentless bleeding. The story seems crazy to me because it's a reversible procedure and male sterilization is offered by NHS, yet this woman had to fight to get this procedure done. On top of that, about 91% of abortions are funded by NHS, but this is for some reason not covered. When you zoom out and see that just about every form of contraception and abortion is covered by NHS, but this procedure, it doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense why, why the NHS would cover just even going going on the on the surface of abortion it doesn't make sense that the national health service would cover abortions but would not cover someone who wants to prevent having to get an abortion she said she doesn't want children she hasn't gotten pregnant i don't know if she would have an abortion if she got pregnant she never stated whether or not that was even something that would cross her mind but if she did get pregnant and wanted to get an abortion it would be covered Yet, by wanting to get a, a, a tubal litigation, she cannot have it done because people are saying that the, the, the government healthcare should not cover your want to do that. But it will cover birth control, which is the same thing, but more expensive over a long period of time. Because if she wants to take birth control for the rest of her life, they would be paying out however much it costs in the UK to get that birth control in perpetuity versus just paying for this one-time procedure and then her not having to worry about it again. And what doesn't make even more sense is the fact that the NHS has no problem covering a vasectomy, which is essentially the same procedure but for men, but won't cover this. It seems like, it's just, it's, it's not okay. It's a little bit iffy. It's a little bit fuzzy. I don't like it. I don't like the idea here. I don't like what's behind this. And so I just don't think that it's something that, that it, it's a non-issue. It should be a non-issue. Yet somehow it's, it's become an issue that this woman had to fight for for four years for her right to not have children and to not have to worry about not having children. Now moving on to the last story of the week, I want to read you an article from the Washington Post uh, entitled, Baby Bison Dies After Yellowstone Tourists Put It In Their Car Because It Looked Cold. 
The weather at Yellowstone National Park on May 9th was fairly temperate. The low was 39 degrees Fahrenheit. The high was 50. Nevertheless, when two tourists saw a baby bison, they decided it looked cold and needed to be rescued. So they loaded it in the trunk of their car and drove it to a ranger station. Over the weekend, their action was widely mocked online as evidence of extreme anthropomorphism, not to mention stupidity. On Monday, the park revealed that it was also deadly for the bison. The newborn calf had to be euthanized, the park said in a statement, because its mother had rejected it as a result of the interference by people. Park rangers tried repeatedly to reunite the newborn bison calf with the herd. These efforts failed, the park said. The bison calf was later euthanized because it was abandoned and causing a dangerous situation by continually approaching people and cars along the roadway. The bison's death was the latest in a seemingly unending parade of incidents that underscore the foolishness of approaching, feeding, taking selfies with, or in this case, trying to help wildlife. The park statement emphasized that these interactions can be dangerous and illegal, and it condemned recent viral videos of people approaching bison at perilously close distances. As father and son transported the bison calf in the trunk of a Toyota Sequoia to a ranger station in the park's northeast corner, according to a witness who spoke to East Idaho News, Idaho resident Karen Richardson, who was chaperoning a fifth grade trip to Yellowstone, told the website that the pair were demanding to speak with a ranger. They were seriously worried that the calf was freezing and dying, said Richardson, who took a photo of the calf in the tourist's trunk. Another parent, Rob, excuse me, Rob, uh, I'm going to ruin your last name, Hoisevelt told the website that he warned the tourists that their rescue attempt might run afoul of park regulations, but, quote, they didn't care. He said, quote, they sincerely thought that they were doing a service and helping that calf by trying to save it from the cold. Charissa Reed, a Yellowstone spokesman, spokeswoman, excuse me, said in an interview Monday that the tourists found the bison in the middle of the road and tried unsuccessfully to make it move. Out of desperation, she said, they took it to the rangers. They were just concerned about the well-being of the animal. Bison calves typically nurse for at least seven months. Reed said she did not know exactly how old the deceased calf was, but she said that it was certainly dependent on mother's milk. Park officials did not consider feeding the calf until it was able to feed on grass, she said. It's part in part because it's not terribly unusual that calves separated from their mothers starve to death or are killed by predators. In Yellowstone, it's not a zoo, Reed said. We don't manage for individuals. We manage for ecosystems. About 4,900 bison, which recently became America's national mammal, live in Yellowstone. Park regulations require visitors to stay at least 25 yards or about 75 feet away from all wildlife, including bison, and 100 yards from wolves and bears. Reed said the tourists had been given a ticket for $110, and the National Park's Investigative Service is considering further charges. Now, this story is a couple of things. The first thing that this story is, is a little funny. The fact that these, these, these idiots went to the park and thought, oh, this bison is cold. We need to bring it into the car and we need to take it to the ranger station. What about all the other bison? If th this is not, 
this this doesn't make sense to me because the, the logic of these people doesn't make sense to me because when you zoom out and you ask yourself, well, if this bison is cold, how are all the other ones surviving up to adulthood? Because they're not cold. It's natural. It's part of the ecosystem. It's part of the circle of of how these bison live. So this story just is, it, it seems silly because it is silly. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's it's really unfortunate that these people being stupid caused this bison to die because by by taking this bison out of the cold and putting it in their car the mother rejected the bison the bison is 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 somehow not right because of its interaction with humans and so the bison would have died and so instead of letting the bison die a slow death of starving the park took it upon themselves to euthanize the bison. Now, why they could not have taken it to a, a a reserve of some kind or a farm, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But I imagine that the park probably exhausted all of their resources on that um, to figure out. Because uh, I don't think that Yellowstone is in the business of killing animals. So I don't know why they didn't do it, but I'm sure that there's a logical reason that they didn't do it. And at the end of the day, you know, you have to look at this as what it is. The fact of the matter is, that bison calf, the blood of that bison calf is now on the hands of these tourists. And I, I really hope that they feel terrible for what they did because what they did was was stupid. It was ignorant. I get it. They didn't know better, but you do know better. You're not you're you're an adult. You're not a moron. You know, you you can tell, hey, it might be cold outside, but that bison has all that fur. And on top of that, there's a million other bison calves in the park that are doing just fine. They don't need you. They don't need your help. Go away. But they didn't. And now a bison calf is dead because of it. So good job, guys. Good job. Hope that uh, hope that you kept that bison warm while it died. We'll be right back. Life is like a- hey there, folks. I'm Tyler, and I'm just going to squeeze in here real quick to tell you about my podcast, Cynical Cartoons. Uh, if you're a fan of animation or movies and TV, they're generally so bad they're good, then you have to check out my show, Cynical Cartoons. Uh, basically, every single week, I sit down with another podcaster, and we watch, discuss, and generally mock a kitschy cartoon that was soullessly marketed to children in the 80s, 90s, or even something in theaters now, and rarely, rarely, we might even talk about something good. For example, some stuff that I've talked about in past episodes of the show, the Angry Birds movie, Rubik the Amazing Cube, RoboCop Alpha Commando, Captain Planet, The Last Airbender movie, Street Sharks, and a whole bunch more. So if any of that sounds appealing to you at all, subscribe to the Cynical Cartoons podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever podcatcher you prefer. And as always, I'm here if you need to talk. And that is our episode for the week, folks. Hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed writing, as much as I enjoy recording. I really had fun with this episode. These topics this week were really fun topics to talk about. They were fun topics to research about. And they were pretty fun to write about as well. I'm going to keep this short and sweet and tell you guys uh, a few things that I need you to do. I need you to, if you have not already, go to thewireandwickpodcast.com. Send me an email. 
talk to me. I'm always available to chat. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that good stuff. I post stuff to the uh, to the the Instagram from time to time, and I post things to all, all of our social media from time to time. I'm not the best at keeping up with it, but if there's ever any news regarding the show, you will be the first to know because I post it on our social media whenever something comes up. So you should absolutely follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. All of those links will be at the bottom of the page on the wire and wick podcast.com also a contact form to get a hold of me i love chatting with you guys i love talking to you guys uh, i'm always available to talk so shoot me an email anytime tell me what you think of the show tell me what you think of my opinions tell me whether or not you agree with something that i said or whether or not i made a mistake about something we'll correct it if needs be uh, so again the wire and wick podcast.com is where you need to go for all of your information regarding this show Thank you guys so much for tuning in every week. Thank you. I do this for you. I do this so that you will listen. And every listen that I get, I appreciate more than the last. So sorry, first listener. <laughs> All right, folks, that is our episode for the week. This has been the Wire and Wick podcast. I'm your host, Chris Carlson. And remember, it's all bullshit.